Downloads of this show are available on Podomatic.com and the Podomatic mobile app. Welcome to the Truth to Power show. This is your host, VJR Nathan, and this is Radio Free Brooklyn. Today's guest is Sakantari Sve. She was born in a refugee camp in Thailand shortly after her parents fled Cambodia after the fall of Khmer Rouge regime. They were sponsored to come to the United States and resettled in the Bronx, where she grew up. She's currently poetry editor for Newtown Literary, the uh, only literary journal for the Borough of Queens, yes, represent, uh, founding member of the Cambodian American Literary Arts Association, the recent recipient of the American Opera Projects, composer and the Voice Fellowship for 2017-19, and the 2018 Emerging Poets Fellowship at Poets House. Publication credits include Homelands, Women's Journey Across the Race, Place and Time, Flesh, uh, Prairie Schooner, Women's Studies Quarterly, Peregrine, and The Margins. Her first collection of poetry, Apsara in New York, is available from Willow Books. Welcome. Welcome. Thank, Thank you, Vijay. Thank you. Thank you. So um, why don't we start a little bit talking a little bit about um, like how, what you, when you came to America, what age, and how you... Um, how you feel about um, if you could talk a little bit about your background and the and the the, the book of Sar in New York I know has a lot to do with you know the traditions of Cambodia and how contrasting with New York and American culture or how it's adopted in American mm-hmm. culture. So we'll talk a little bit about culture and such and, and first start with a little bit of your story. Yeah, sure. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so so I was born in a refugee camp in Thailand after my parents had. Uh, fled Cambodia after the fall of the Khmer Rouge regime and um, they had crossed the jungle um, through the, across the border and then there I was they they uh, were in a few different camps uh, then we were uh, sponsored by the International Rescue Committee and resettled in the Bronx and that's where I grew up so when I so when I came to the US I was a year old so I was spared a lot of uh, the actual you know, experiencing of, of being, being a refugee and, and, you know, living through the Khmer Rouge, thank goodness. But, uh, but I was a witness and lived with my parents' trauma and their, and their sort of survival mode. Mm. Yeah, I know in the, uh, one of the poems, No Others, it mm-hmm. goes into, you know, the kind of, utter, you know, loss and devastation in this family even. And, and there's something that's, uh, endemic in a lot of these families where so many of the relatives have, either died or missing mm-hmm. and only the few of them had survived and it's amazing when I think about you know I'm uh, someone who's my parents had moved here um, from immigrate here from India and uh, you know having lived here and I'm like uh, around the age that they would have come here mm. and just thinking about how much courage and to leave your country come to a new area and um, you know just start a new life and and it's must be doubly difficult when you don't have the kind of network you know all these kinds of things so uh, network, yeah, refl- network, network yeah, resources yeah. yeah appreciating that yeah mm-hmm. take a moment to appreciate that and and how um uh maybe we can read a poem about how uh with your daughter bringing her up and and appreciation and uh, understanding of that legacy and that culture but also and you know in the process of assimilating into american culture mm-hmm. or rather you know bringing that culture and you know maintaining culture, preserving culture, but also being a part of America, yeah. Shall yeah. I read it now? Yeah, yeah. So okay. this is your inheritance, I believe? Yeah. Yes, and it's yeah, actually dedicated great. to her. Yeah. So, uh, this is your inheritance <clears throat> for Surya. 
I see years of history before you, my Cambodian daughter. I named you in Sanskrit as the sun, a Hindu god. You contain the darkness of our genocide. You are the potential of our refugees to come back from near extinction. I see you in a stone homage to gods and kings among the Bayon's tower of echoing faces. You are the dancers Kambojin who wooed Rodin to that Paris dock, immortalized in watercolor. You'll be too much or not enough. They will mispronounce you, misspell you. Yogis will hear your name and think sun salutations. Remember, those who bow to your light must not burn from your sun. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So um, let's talk a little bit more about, um, also about uh, how you've grown as a writer and and your influences. Um, So focus a little bit on that and uh, where do you draw your influences from? Gosh, you know, when people ask me, like, you know, who are your favorite poets, I always yeah. like, cite the same two. Uh-huh. And that yeah. is uh, Kimiko Han, because uh-huh. she's like the one poet who I've consistently read. Uh, I have like, six of her books, and I've read them over the years, and I always come back to it. Her and Aga Shahid Ali, um, his book, The Country Without a Post Office, really changed my life, especially at, at a pivotal point in my life where I was transitioning out of a relationship and coming back to myself. Yeah. But also uh, separating from my parents and trying to figure out who I was when I wasn't rebelling. Yeah. And rebelling became my identity. And and what happens when you don't have that fight anymore? Then you have to figure out what's left, you yeah. know, who you actually are. Um, and as far as, like, other influences, right now I'm, I'm meeting Audrey Lord, And, you know, I've been sleeping on her. Like, she is incredible. I mean, just the, I think the... The confidence, but also just the fearlessness of just writing from this place where, you, where you know, as a woman, we, we often, like, apologize for everything, from the smallest things to, like, the large things about not doing enough. Um, so, her, I, I don't know. This is a hard question to answer. Because yeah. it's like, let me get everything that is important <laughs> to me in my life yeah. and say it. Uh, but also music. Actually, music is a huge part of my life. Uh, before I even wrote, I was, a, I was singing and I was playing flute. So uh, Mozart, Mozart's Requiem was a really big influence because that was, I think, when I first heard it, I'd heard Lacrimosa uh, um, in like, a, I was taking a gospel, in contemporary gospel class, because it was the only way I could sing at LaGuardia High School. I was a flute major. They wouldn't allow us to be double majors, but I kind of felt obligated to take flute because my dad bought me like a $150 flute. <laughs> so I, I thought, okay. The rest of my life is going to be based on this yeah. cheap flute. And, but then I found a way to take like a, a, a voice class. I sat there and I heard it, and I was—I'd never heard like really heard choral music before, yeah. Western classical choral music, and it changed my life. So then I was like, okay, I don't have any money. I got like five dollars a day, but I have to find out where this piece is from. And so I bought—it was when a Virgin Megastore was still around at yeah. Union Square in like the mid '90s—and I bought Mozart's Requiem, uh, and I listened to it every day twice a day for like months for like uh, oh god for like three or four months because i knew that there was a longing and a a quiet and a pain that i couldn't verbalize yet because i didn't i wasn't taught the words through my parents yeah and we were speaking in different languages so i learned i think real pain through music first yeah i think that's why i love also like r&b and soul because it's just damn 
black people have been through a lot in this country yeah. and they really know how to sing about pain and i i really i don't know i felt camaraderie with that pain because yeah. we hadn't learned yet how to verbalize it as cambodians yeah so that is really my biggest influence is actually music oh, uh, music of all varieties yeah it's so important to realize you know when you bring up the um you know that we all as human beings experience that but also like specifically how it's articulated through gospel and and through uh blues and all that yeah, and uh the cultural identification the ability to articulate and bring the passion through music and lyrics it's very powerful and you know being able to connect with that human uh, experience yeah mm, so um, yeah so um yeah and also uh the themes of in, uh, generations in the book yes. you know having to do with uh your mother's experiences and your experience and your daughter's experiences and if you talk a little bit about just how you kind of communicate the book has a lot to do with communication and mm -hmm. sometimes you have a very uh uh funny very brief poem but a very funny one about how you know, your mother comes here and then does a typo on Facebook or something. And, and it ends up being like a, a very strange mis cultural communication. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. You, know, you know, I think you are the first person to use the word communication. Yeah. Like, uh, 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 well, I mean, obviously there's like language. Yeah. But then there's like really like communication and miscommunication. Miscommunication, like, yeah. Like mis kind of misdirected. But uh, yeah. There's another uh, meeting that, yeah. We well, can, I, yeah. that's my entire, you know, yeah. God, my entire relationship. Right? <laughs> my mom is like that. We've had a lot of misunderstandings because I would, I would be using an expression, an idiom, and she'd yeah. be taking it literally. Yeah. And we had like a really bad fight <laughs> once because of she, uh, she was like talking about, you know, there's a lot of gossip is like really rampant in, in our community. <laughs> it's just like past the passing of times through gossip. But uh, she was like talking about my younger brother's girlfriend at the time was just. You know, talking smack, and uh, and I was like, you know, I don't care to talk about it. And she yeah. was like, I'm good, you know. Yeah. But she's like, you don't care. Uh. You don't care about your brother. I was like, whoa, what? Uh -huh. <laughs> and I just had my baby, and then, yeah. uh, and that's and then we didn't talk for months, and yeah. and then I went to like deep postpartum depression oh. as part of that isolation from her and everybody else. Yeah. So so yeah, language is really powerful. Yeah. <laughs> like really mess with you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah i mean like i think that also generations the generational gap sometimes can you know but mm -hmm. also the way in which um you know older generations come to this country immigrants come to this country and then they they and then even the country is changing so much and then how you know the past you know people even lived here all their life they have to adapt to changing times and such and and how we're able to uh for my own life you know kind of bring to bear uh what my parents brought for me from the, from India and such, and whether or not how much I have to uphold that, or how much I have to be American, and that that tension, you know, and uh, how to how to handle that. Yeah, I think we're always going to live with that tension. That's yeah. just that, that's just a part of our being, right? Yeah, being on that cusp. Hmm. Yeah, you know, I, you talk about generations. I think you know. I don't know why, but hearing you talk about. You know, it's it's always interesting to hear new people talk about the book mm -hmm. and what I do, and it's it's still strange to me that I have a, a collect a body of work yeah. that people can reference now. Before it was just like I do this, I do this, and now it's just like look at what you have done and like placed here and, and you put in this space. So it's just it's still it's really an honor still every time I'm asked to talk about it and to read from it. So thank you. Thank you. Um, but uh, I was thinking about like the generations and it somehow when you said generations it felt different to me as opposed to the times that people say, oh, intergenerational trauma, yeah. which has become like such a, 
a phrase now, you know. Yeah. Uh, but I, I think about like the miscommunications and the different uh, media that are in here, like you know the face in yeah. the Facebook, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. <laughs> or like you know letters or, or whatever, and just yeah. uh, or even like you know as an as a, an incantation to my daughter who I named after you know the sun god. Yeah. But in Cambodia, well, we have Sanskrit loan words, so Surya becomes Surya. Ah. So uh, I, you know. I knew right away I wanted to name her that mainly because the nickname Soya was so cute, oh. like the so- like soya bean. Yeah, <laughs> so that's actually what I call her. <laughs> but uh, should I read what? Uh, yeah, yeah, there's another one I picked out. Um, yeah, I think it's beneath the ground, but you can also pick whatever you'd like. Uh, you know, you, you yeah. said Facebook, so I have to yeah, okay, read Facebook that one. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, and there are like indentations in this book, so clearly you've been reading it. Go yeah, it. thank you. Thank you. <laughs> oh, it's like. It's always tough to find them. Yeah. Uh, okay, so the story behind uh, "Good Luck, Homie" is that it started with, I and mean, there's the one-liner before it. And what had happened was, uh, what had happened was, a uh, my mom, uh, she wanted me to teach her how to like write some like key phrases to use in Facebook. Uh-huh. And I thought that that was really cute because she's actually being quite proactive about it. But she never asked my dad because he doesn't have patience with her. He's like traditional and just like oh, I'm not going to teach you, you know. And then, uh, so she started using some of those phrases, uh, but she <laughs> misspelled it and said, good luck, honey. Yeah. She went, homie. <laughs> and I laughed so hard when I saw that because I just thought, like, oh, that is unintentionally funny. <laughs> really amazing. Okay. So this one's called, quote unquote, good luck, homie. Yeah. You know, my life good. Now I know like I happy. I use the Skype, Facebook, and I not alone. I take the picture, put on the Facebook, and everybody like it. I now know how to read before, but now I good. How you write beautiful? I want you write. When I see the picture, my friends say, "How are you, the good sister?" That how you spell? Oh my God! I never know. Now I know. I learned so much from you. You see, honey, you my good luck. But let me read uh, Beneath the Ground since you had mentioned yeah. it. Yeah. Uh, okay. Beneath the Ground. A prayer summons me back. Sutras revive generations who return with folded hands and whispers, a prod of incense. The earth is snug. Incense burns to ash. The monks you requested murmur in monotone, naked as their shaved scalp. I lie beside the rice stalks, as if only to smell incense from beneath the ground, awaiting harvest and rebirth. So I imagine that the Buddhist in you yeah. <laughs> like that. Yeah, I really appreciate how it uh, melds in, uh, you know, the the um, imagery of the country as well as the, you know, um, yeah, the themes of the rebirth and reincarnation. Obviously, yeah. Well, the. The Buddhist background in me, it calls, and I'm constantly like trying to find my way back to it. I I, I like to say that Cambodians are cultural Buddhists, mm-hmm. uh, partly because like you know you get married, you don't have you know in the U.S. I, someone said to me, oh yeah, my friend married a Vietnamese woman, and they had a Buddhist ceremony. It's like it's not a ceremony; it's just a wedding. Yeah. <laughs> it's just a wedding ceremony. You know, yeah. like, it's not a Buddhist wedding. You know, uh, because you know like anything anything big happens. You know, a birth, a death. You go to temple. That's just what you do, unless you're a part of like that small percentage 
that is Muslim yeah. or now this growing like Christian uh, thing with all this proselytizing and yeah. and these missions that I don't agree with, but yeah. uh, you know, using using Christ as a way to, for people to get ahead yeah. or bribing people to you know to yeah. turn toward Christianity. But yes. I know even in India, you know, the problem has been. Um, you know, Hinduism and it's, uh, although they've kind of moved away from the caste system per se, but still there's some, some, you know, trenches of that in India. Mm. That's why a lot of people have been converting to either Buddhism or, or Christianity because they oh. feel like a little mentally freed from the kind of baggage that Hinduism mm. has brought. Uh, this is my understanding from things I've, you know, understood from people I've talked and all that. But, uh, you know, some, especially people are, you know, socially not mobile in India. They feel like mm. they can kind of escape out of uh, the kind of cultural baggage or the cultural wow. understanding. That makes a lot yeah. of sense, actually. Yeah, mm. yeah, because it does bring to them some kind of opportunity for, you know, connection with Christ despite, uh, what, you know, they're not, you know, uh, they're not judging in that sense, the, the, the karmic, you know. Oh, yeah, yes. Like, yeah, they, sometimes people have that idea of karma as being very, judgmental you know and mm. that kind of judgmental oh. uh, yeah judgmental it's your karma you did this to yourself kind of. yeah. no that's yeah. right my, my yeah. mom is still like you know yeah. my, my you know she's like it's because i was bad in another life yeah like she's convinced that that's why she suffered yeah. so much this life yeah <laughs> but yeah and then also like how the or your, your daughter has been if you talk a little bit about kind of how uh, how you teach her the traditions and how, you know, uh, and how whether or not you maintain that or how you... Oh, I try so hard, you know. I think uh, so much of, of whatever rituals we have, I, I associate with my parents. And now that they are both gone from New York City yeah. and they live in Georgia, my mom yeah. literally just retired like about over a month ago. And uh, I'm struggling now to figure out how I can keep it because I don't live in the Bronx anymore near the other Cambodians where I grew up. Yeah. So, you know, I'm here in Forest Hills and the only Cambodian in Forest Hills, I'm certain, I would have found the other one. You know how it is. Yeah. We find each other. Yeah. Uh, I, I know a couple of actually um, uh, Southeast Asians like uh, Burmese, uh, two Burmese, uh, Lao and Thai. But, um, and we have some similar overlap in, in our rituals. But, but it takes extra work when you are not around people of your background. You yeah. Know, and you know this. Yeah. Uh, and so, um, so I, I, rather than being so, what's the word? Being so strict. Yeah. Because I think, because I think that is a way of us judging ourselves, right? Like mm. it has to be done the way that we remember it. Yeah. And I'm, I'm, I'm trying to just be chill and allow myself to do it the way that I remember. And if I don't get it exactly right, that's okay. But I want my daughter, so I had to be able to, to witness it and to see it. Like there was a point where I made a beautiful altar with like you know rice wine and like fruits and candies, and then it was quite beautiful. I was very proud of myself. And um, I went like uh, uh, um, my partner bought like a vintage Buddha uh, from Cambodia, and and so we like burned the incense and you know we bowed three times. And she was like really into. She's like, this is fun. Like I like Buddha, you yeah. know, or like she was like these kids like were were like pressuring her because she wasn't Christian, right? Yeah. And one of the, this other girl who was Thai and Lao like stood up for her, and I was just like, oh my god, like this is 
she was like, that's okay. I mean, I don't believe in Jesus, but, you know, I mean, that's cool for you. Yeah. <laughs> and she's like, we believe in Buddha, right, Mama? Yeah. Our family believes in Buddha. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, I don't even know that I'm, I'm not, like, strict Buddhist in the sense, like, I'm going to temple and I'm doing all those things. Yeah. But for me, it's like the presence of Buddha and is very strong in my life as a symbol. Yeah. You know? So, so I consider myself Buddhist, but sometimes I feel like, am I an, an imposter? <laughs> yeah. 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 Yeah, I know, like, uh, when my mom was uh, growing up, I actually grew up Hindu, so. Oh, okay. Uh, so they kind of, you know, vague sense, but uh, my mom was always, like, very critical of the traditions, like, in the sense of she, when she, when she did a puja, she'd want to, the priest to come in and, and do it shorter or, you know, not go on and on for hours, do the essentials and, and, you know, make it clear, translate for the audience if there was any English speaker. She was very much into, like, essentializing, oh. you know, and, uh, and kind of getting rid of the excess. Because, you know, weddings can go on. My sister, my sister got married. You know, weddings can go on for days. So she wanted, <laughs> you know, the essential traditions that she felt were important and, and have a translator there for the, you know, and, have, and always, you know, her ability to shift through that. Was, well, how, yeah. how long are the, are the weddings? How long is is an Indian wedding once you just get to the essentials? Oh, yeah, exactly. And it can be it can be as short as very short. It can be very like a few hours or whatever. But oh wow, yeah. I mean, the the point is the she wants to get down to the nitty gritty, but otherwise it can go on for days. You know? So, so I feel like there's, like there's a point to that, though, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, there's a point to like the the lengthiness. It reminds me in like like of the chanting too, yeah. and the way that you know, it becomes meditative. But yeah, you know, in these modern times, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like we gotta go, you yeah. know, <laughs> got yeah. somewhere to be. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, um, what else coming up for you as far as um, like the writing process? Are you mm-hmm. Newtown Literary and Queens connecting Queens writers, and you do? Uh, how is the uh, Cambodian Literary Association? Oh God, that's a lot of different it. things. So let's start with uh, writing process. Yeah. That changes a lot, which yeah. is really cool. Um, actually after the book came out which was uh, last September I felt kind of a drought uh, I'm perhaps you've been through this you know yeah. like once you do that big work and it's just like all right I'm done for a little bit yeah. right because it just takes so much out of you to like go through the editing process but part of it was I was worried that like all right I'm done that's yeah. it I did the book I'm done now uh, and I have a friend Brian who would, who did not like it when I said that even oh. as a joke uh, he's always saying to all his Southeast Asian like contingent finish your book hashtag finish your book like that was his thing he'd harass everybody like finish your book and we need to have that i think for us in queens but um but uh yeah i think i was kind of going through like a dry spell with that but also i've been working on on opera and i'm working on fiction so it's just there's only so many things i can do and yet i I try to do everything Mm. and i'm going to a phd uh program in the fall so i'm gonna have like the academic side of my mind but uh but the writing process, I can't, I can't like go to a room and be like, okay, I'm going to write now. For me, it's like, I'm, I find a lot of inspiration when I'm walking. Yeah. I think, cause for me, that's very meditative. And then I, I start to like brainstorm out, uh, thinking about one thing. And then I have to stop and I like, you know, dictate it on my phone and I'll come back to it later. Or uh, the other day I wrote four pages of notes and that was based on notes I got from uh, some fellows in, in a workshop. 
because I, I was writing, I've been writing stuff about marriage and just partnership and what that means, but also woman, a woman in a marriage being like a form of currency, you know, think about dowries and passing of, from the father to the husband, you know, and I was, uh, there was like some bitterness in talking about that, about marriage in that traditional sense. So I took their comments and like, they wrote notes from when I was talking about it and they made titles, like one I called they called a hypothetical baby because uh, there was one guy I was dating a long time ago and he got freaked out because I imagined what it would like it be like if we had a baby and that like freaked him out and then that ended and I thought dude it was a hypothetical baby (laughs) like it's not a real baby it's like if you love somebody you know that has to be on your mind at least once you can't like go over that Uh, so anyway so things like that and so I, I started free writing a hypothetical baby and like all these other things, like a woman woman is a currency or something like that. And like some amazing stuff came out. And then I was also reading some poetry that was given out to us. Uh, and I thought, let me respond to lines. So I think like for me, I need to read other people's poetry to get myself going. Yeah. So I bought like six books of poetry I hadn't gotten to yet. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but I did finish five novels. Okay. Finished reading five novels, so I'm on kind of a reading binge. And that's the other thing. We shouldn't just be reading our own genre. We need to be reading others because so people have so many different ways to to write and approaches. And, you know, every time I read something new that I love, I'm like, why didn't I think of that? Yeah. Let me do that. Like, just things like that. Like, I'm always, you know, appropriating, stealing, yeah. borrowing, you know, whatever you want to call it. Assimilating yeah. it. You assimilating, know? <laughs> yeah. I think assimilating yeah, would be good. Yeah, yeah. 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 And, uh, and then... Adopting, so, yeah. So there's that. And then uh, as far as, like, Newtown goes, um, God, I love Newtown. I don't think I can say enough good things. And I'm not just saying that just because I'm poetry editor. Yeah. <laughs> but because uh, they were the ones who welcomed me first into the fold. They were like, hey, come read. And hey, we like your po- we love your poetry. And then... And then Tim, who is like, you know, the champion of Queens writers, Tim Frederick. Um, and everybody on the team is just so wonderful and so caring. And they, they truly want to support emerging writers and create this community. And there's like one other one other Cambodian in Queens, but yeah. LIC got her. You know, I, I met her at one of my readings. And then I was like, hey, girl, you should really submit. Her name is um, Bik Chanda. Bao, and she's going to be hosting the Asian, the Asian American Writers in Queens uh, event. I think it's next month. And you know, that was all because I met her at yeah. one of my readings. And then she got published, and she's like, she did two readings. Now she's hosting a Newtown reading. And Newtown is just like, we see you guys, and let's bring you in. And how do we, how do we make this place like where you go and you will know all these writers? And you know, the Queens writing community is small, but it's becoming, it's becoming well-known so we yeah. all recognize and uh if not all of each other we recognize a lot of people either by name or when we get there and i love that it just feels very close-knit in a way that i don't think brooklyn is like because it's so big because there are you know so many other options it's like when you think queens like you think newtown yeah and i love that association and it's gonna be crazy being the phd program but i i don't want to leave newtown i think it's just i get so much out of meeting the people who who work with the journal and the people who come up to me when I've given them feedback and that is really lovely to know that you know that I care so much about 
what comes in. And I want to make sure that we honor that. Uh, it hurts. It hurts when we can't accept the poetry, you know, because it's a real person behind those entries. So, so it's really good practice for me to always like figure out how to, you know, learn to read poetry that I wouldn't normally, you know, read, mm. and then, and then how to like make them known. Love Newtown. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. So, um, maybe read one more poem and then we can kind of launch off from there. You can select something you know, that you think is speaking to you right now. Or... Hmm. Okay. So this is a, this is another like, uh, women, generations and, um, traditions or like, yeah, just cultural heritage. So it's yeah. called a uh, daughter in waiting. Oh, um, the first word ma. That's how you. That's one way to say mother. Oh. Daughter in waiting. Ma, I'm watching for your cues to know who's older, who's younger, more ancient, whose legs I can't cross over, whose head I must bow lower when I walk past. Who deserves more respect? Who is a brother? Who is an uncle? ancestor, royalty, teacher, wearing titles that hold entire relationships that determine worlds of dynamics, shift rooms and expectations, how much to widen the circle, how robust. I'm waiting ma, for you to tell me if this woman is your elder or junior, if I should see her as my sister or aunt. I'm watching as you respond to different titles from others, but you are my mother, so ma, tell me how to connect so uh so that one is like one of those like you poems you know you're yeah. like asking for something and and for me i think uh writing poetry like my first the first poem i wrote was a, was called portrait of a, of a cambodian lady but it became this version portrait of a cleaning lady and it was like this love poem to my mom to say like you know this is how I see you. This is who you are. And I remember it was like a intro to creative writing at City College. Yeah. And people were like really blown away. But I was like, I was like, oh my god, I just wrote about my mom. Yeah. <laughs> like, like everybody writes about their mom at some point. But I thought like, oh, my words actually like affected people. And that's like when the, you know yeah. things started turning in my my brain. And I was like, okay, let me try this. You know. And for me, I think I've always been trying to get back to my mom. Like that's what this process is to get back. Go go home to my mother because I feel like I left her a long time ago. I think when I went to high school, I mentally like was trying to leave home and to replace mother with lovers, Yeah, you know, uh, with friends. And then when I left, uh, when I went into college, I, I moved out and uh, lived with now my husband, but he, uh, we weren't married then. And uh, I would return home and she was a different person when I came, when I visited as opposed to when I lived with her, mm. you know? Um, she was more patient. She would say things like, how are you? We don't say that to each other. Yeah. <laughs> we say like, did you eat? You know, and yeah. stuff like that. And and so I was developing a new relationship with her that I'd never had before. One where we weren't fighting each other. Uh, one where we weren't always tense and like trying to force these roles on each other. You know, I'm forcing trying to force her to be a mom that is recognizable to me based on American ideals. And she's trying to, you know, do the op I, you know, with me as well, but with Cambodian expectations. Uh, and so now it's like we're, we're finally seeing each other, I think, 
more clearly for who we are. And so when I write this stuff, it's just a way for me to connect to the things that I remember. Yeah. And to also say, like, it's okay. And I, I don't have to fight it, but I don't have to accept all of it. So it's, for me, like a reconciliation. Yeah, and I think in my reading as well, um, you know, the wrestling with, you know, with, um, the, you know, I think you, even with my parents' generation, the coming here and wrestling with the ideas that you're talking about, American ideals and how, you know, there's been such a the narrative, there's been such an idealization, though, at the same time of you know, the Western narrative as being perfect and, and some of these, uh, mm. you know, countries like India or Cambodia or Asia as being like backward and stuff like that. And it's very troubling because, you know, even even for my mom's generation coming here to struggle with realizing that, oh, you know, in America they want uh, their ideal is to have empowerment of women. But then, you know, there's a, then they were seeing this counter narrative coming up. You know, like my point is just being that, you know, it's easy for people sometimes to be judged these cultures as being our cultures as being um you know what, what do you how do you struggle with that or you know we talk about western ideals and um, and you know the kind of uh I know. The, you know part of it is like like the western ideals of how we're supposed to be i mean it, that's when that becomes like the wallpaper of your upbringing right it's just yeah. it's everywhere and and tv was our babysitter you know yeah. so we're like constantly watching it um and seeing like those family like like family ties or you know like seeing those those shows with like the the those perfect white families yeah. with their sweater vests and yeah. and you're like like you know and they have family talks you know i remember my dad yeah. would like try to have family talks yeah. and it wasn't really a family talk it was like i'm going to dictate to you like <laughs> you sit in a room i call it a family talk but i'm the father yeah. and i'm the dictator i would yeah. tell you what to do uh, and i remember I remember sitting and like tracing the outline of the pillow like over and over because I was just like, this is not a family talk. And it was just, and I distinctly remember that scene. I don't know, just sitting there and knowing like I have no, absolutely no say in what's happening, but we're going through these emotions, right? It's kind of like with Christmas and Thanksgiving. You know, yeah. you know, we're not Christian or, yeah. you know, but you know, that's, yeah. that's practically secular anyway, the, the celebration of it. I remember one time we had, um, so we got a tree. We always got like a fake tree, of course. My dad wasn't going to like get a real tree. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, you can't reuse that. Yeah. <laughs> Not cost effective. <laughs> but I remember my mom got me a present. She had me help her wrap my present. Uh, <laughs> so it's yeah. like kind of defeats the purpose yeah. of the surprise. Yeah. So I'm like wrapping. And she didn't have a box for the sneakers. So we're like wrapping uh, the sneaker. Like uh, it looks so awkward, uh, you know. Uh, so that was funny. Or like one time we... uh. There's this whole like sweatshop thing happening where like a lot of the refugees they would do like piecemeal work. So we're making bows and various things, and we had a huge mountain of like fabric. And my mom's making bows, and we like twist things and help out. But uh, on, I remember we were making bows on Christmas once, and and we just ordered pizza, and you know I was like, oh, I guess we're not gonna do Christmas. But it was, <laughs> but it was like for us like Christmas we we sort of did it maybe. It was like yeah. one year on, one year off. Yeah, you know? that, it, it, that happened in yeah. my family as well. It was kind of like that as well. I yeah. remember always being disappointed by Thanksgiving and how I wanted it to be like I saw on TV mm -hmm. or how I imagined people in America, you know, not, well, you know, people, my, my other people, uh -huh. you know, um, celebrated Thanksgiving. I was yeah. always disappointed. And some years we know we really hit it. Some years it was like, 
off year or something. I don't know. It's like we hadn't yeah. really had enough time to build that, like uh, the ritual, like exactly yeah. the way it's supposed to be. Yeah. I we yeah it was it was, it was inconsistent. I think inconsistent. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. because we're trying to like we're trying to capture something that we're seeing and yeah. trying to translate it into our lives, but I might. I think my family has gotten so much better, but it's been like 30 something years, yeah. you know, but before it was like, I remember, uh, there was always like a cranberry sauce issue where like, you know, my parents are fine with the cans, but, um, excuse me, when I first, um, dated my husband, he like insisted on making cranberry sauce himself, you know, so he got the big bags and he does it. And, um, so tart <laughs> it was like <laughs> it was like like juice and like uh, yeah. and like too cinnamony and i like nobody touched it so after that he was like okay lots of sugar <laughs> every yeah. year after that and um and my dad is that's the one meal that he has to be the one to make it he won't cook most of the time but he's like the bravado of you know i'm gonna make the big meat and the bird yeah. and all that stuff oh gosh but now now like those rituals are so important in my family, especially because they moved down south, and you know, I'm super white down yeah. there, so it's just like, yeah, everybody's gonna. They're always looking for excuses to get together, which I mean, that's natural, I guess. But, yeah. But I don't have that. I don't yeah. have that here. It's like they got to become more Cambodian again, moving down to Georgia, whereas I'm stuck here by myself and Ugh. like like reaching for like tendrils, you know, of like what is left of my 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 upbringing. So I feel a bit of sadness about it. Feel yeah. a bit of loneliness about it. Hmm. Oh, that's gonna be a poem. Yeah, <laughs> maybe give me a year though. Yeah. I, I gotta step away from the pain. You know? Yeah, <laughs> just the the holidays and how they've been reinvented and now, um, you know, re- transplanting or transplanting or kind of finding a place where we can mm. uh, bring something to the narrative. I guess the American narrative and and transform it in some ways. Yeah, mm. would you say is the Kind of the end game or the, the next I, step. Well, it, so- it certainly yeah. sounds like what my family is doing. Yeah. For me, though, like I think what I've learned is like I want to take what I remember and create these new things. So yeah. you know, I'm, I want I want to make my own traditions. I think I think that's what a lot of like parents, parents do. do yeah. yeah, right. Okay. Uh, yeah. Especially now that you know my parents won't be around for forever, and, yeah. and so like, what do I do then? Like, and who becomes the authority on what is you know. Cambodian the way that it's supposed to be mm. like I thought about going to a temple and like let me find out the right way to do the prayer you know yeah. I mean I've, I've looked up the Pali and I know you know like the, the, the three refuges and you know like um, and how to chant them and the Namo Tassa Bhagavato but uh, at one point am I going to be okay with just being Khmer the way I am yeah. and to you know get it from my for me so much of it is piecemeal work from my memory and then uh and then like a lot of the stuff i've written in here and what i've learned about the Khmer Rouge that was all like my own research when nobody else was writing about it i didn't have anybody to look up to aside from like survival memoirs for me it was like i have to be my own researcher and that's what i would say to like anybody who comes from uh, who comes from a traumatized community Mm. is like be willing to go out there and look for that literature and look for the, 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 the film, the resources, the music. So so for me, it's like I have that, but now, you know, then what do I do with that? Yeah. And then to heal from that and then and then also move on. Like you mm. got to let, let it go at some point. Yeah. Is the problem right now with my community is that, uh, you know, we're finally at a place where we have a new generation 
of people who can create new things that perhaps have the backdrop of that that the genocide mm. but don't have to focus on like let's retell the story over and over again yeah on the other hand you have like the um the uh you know the the holocaust like the jewish holocaust yeah. uh, and how there's always a new take on how somebody survived that so yeah. uh, so i don't know you know yeah so i guess one could argue that we can keep writing survival stories yeah i mean i uh, strangely i was thinking not the opposite but i was in world war ii in general has become there's so many narratives oh, of my, world god. War II oh my god that it's yeah. like when i saw uh, the latest one with by uh, nolan uh i was like what is this really bringing to that crowded table that you mm. know that that i really, love that i i, I don't know i just felt like the film didn't bring uh for me, it was visually interesting, but it, you know, being there as a World War II, there's so much written, there's so much talked about, so much discussed about it that I didn't feel like it brought a new angle to it. You exactly, know, know, yeah. exactly. And yeah. that's what needs to happen if you're going I mean, to... You're going to Welsh-Rite territory, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And my, yeah. Uh, my husband is a real, like, World War II buff. <laughs> mm. <laughs> uh, I think part of it is, like, he just... I think from what I understood, uh, from what he said, is, like, he, he still can't get past the idea that that could be done you know to people yeah and it's like the thinking behind that i mean yeah. it's the same kind of thing that's being explored you know historically with like with, uh, with uh, paul pot and the khmer rouge mm. um uh but it's it's triggering for me because yeah. it just it makes me angry and uh i think i feel slightly more numb as a result of having read so many of these memoirs yeah um but when i see vietnam things about Vietnam that actually makes me like angry it reignites mm. that maybe it's because like I have that distance as not being Vietnamese mm. but it's it, it's like it, it starts all over again for me so I have to be very careful how I approach things like I don't want to I don't want to be that I'm not sure that I want to be that go-to person for the Khmer Rouge stuff anymore yeah. I am the go-to person for things Cambodian and that's yeah. fine I love yeah. that that means people are thinking of me and they're thinking of my people but uh, I definitely don't want to be like. So, what do you think of the, the Khmer Rouge? And it's like, you know what? I'm, yeah. I'm done talking about it. And I've done yeah. enough interviews to say like, I, I want to be done talking about it. Or just yeah. like, how can we, like you said, like find a new angle? You know, at least bring something to the contemporary conversation. How we are able to see repeating patterns, or see how identify with the. Um, con- what we're seeing now, being able to get that lens through the. To see it, not just talking about a narrative in the past, but rather mm-hmm. how the repeating cycles mm-hmm. and, and, and I think how that's, dangers of repeating and all that. And yeah. that's what I love about using the, the Khmer Rouge as like a backdrop and to uh, see like how new art from the diaspora is yeah. a result of that. And so, you know, what narratives are we telling now, and how can we change those narratives? So exactly. that's kind of the yeah. so that's kind of the stuff that I end up talking about, and especially with like uh, the organization. Uh, that I'm the board president for the Cambodian American Literary Arts Association, or CLA, for uh, for short. And uh, the, uh, CLA is actually the word for tiger, so you yeah. know, like a kind of symbolic thing too. But um, we wanted to find a way to to help our community heal and to like take stock of the, the writings of elders, as well as uh, as well as influence, inspire, and nourish and encourage young. Cambodian Americans to use writing as a tool for expression and for healing because uh, for uh, for the founders a lot of whom are writers including myself 
um, that was what we saw as a, a form of power that is that is free, <laughs> you know. Yeah. And um, and also, for so many of us, we don't have that community, and so we wanted to create a virtual community, but also like you know a place where people can we can create classes. Eventually, we'd love to have like you know a retreat. Mm. Um, we work. We have uh, submissions open for our like literary zine. Mm. Um, so uh, so that's how I'm trying to help with the next generation. Uh, because I, I want to be what I didn't have. I think that's what, especially like a lot of parents. Yeah. But but people who are strong connected to the community, you know, if you are a person who is giving or is giving back, and that's, I definitely want to give back. It's like, how do I give what I couldn't get or receive at the time? Mm. And also, I think of my daughter and how I want to give, I truly want to give her access to anything and everything if she if she wants it. Yeah. Yeah. It's one of the threads I'm thinking about is like how, um, different communities have, uh, addressed like topics and, and areas like in, in mental health and, in uh, that, you know, in, I think Asian communities generally have, and you talked a little bit earlier about how the family talk and, and all these kinds of things and how, we've kind of evolved as simultaneously to kind of bring out, um, you know, issues of upkeep and, and, and mental health and all these kinds of things and uh, keeping uh, the, um, and even as a community, you are talking about the, the trauma and such, but also the personal traumas, how it um, connects, you know, and how mm-hmm. we, we are moving forward and we're also responding to and seeing what the causes are and, and, and understanding uh, as a community's are able to, uh, you know, respond to the, to, to bring something light, the light into the, into the conversation. Yeah. Yeah. I think there are going to be more conversations as we go on. And, uh, and I think the, the makeup of, of, you know, the new communities will be much more like, uh, racial, racially, uh, ethnically mixed. Yeah. And then you have like, you know, what happens when you, a community has been established in a country for a bit, uh, and how that evolves, you know, like, you know, like say like the Chinese and the Americas um, or like the Japanese with like yeah. you know, the several generations, those who have lived through you know, the, uh, the camps and, as a, and been discriminated against during war. And then, yeah, I, just, I, I think one of the things that I'm I'm concerned about for our community is that we're going I, I'm starting to see that there are less people speaking Khmer, uh, Cambodian. Yeah. Mm. Uh, and that's just, you know, for a variety of reasons, you know, mm. like those who, uh, this a common issue is like a deletion of language is what they call it. Uh, when, you know, young people go to school and their home heritage language is not valued and not seen as like, you know, a form of currency, uh, much like for Spanish speakers who go to school and then lose the language, you know, yeah. as a result, right? Same thing with like just about any other language. Um, and so in this country, we've been taught not to value those home languages, and and then you know parents who who see like you know why are you speaking Spanish or you know whatever you know that's not going to help you graduate you're not going to get money like English is the language of money yeah and, uh, um, and so uh, I'm seeing that with like young Cambodians who can't speak I mean mine mine is okay my Khmer is okay um, but I still connected to the first generation you know I'm I'm one point five uh, meaning that I came of age. Uh, here but was born elsewhere mm. um and the cutoff age is like 12 you know yeah. and so and so for us we kind of live in between 
between those spaces of like you know being Khmer or being American and also I was born in in Thailand which is like you know of neither place that I identify with so so I was born uh, in displacement and and as a refugee so uh to be born in a place where my parents are living under duress uh it's not as clear-cut for me I think for like my younger brother who's born in the Bronx at Jacoby Hospital and I and he doesn't really speak Khmer he's kind of shy or embarrassed about I have no idea but he never he just doesn't and and it's strange for me like how much I identify with the language even even as I stumble upon it yeah I mean I think that the main question for me is like about how whether or not the response is to try to to fight that and and preserve and preserve or whether or not it's inevitable that uh, cultures will morph and change and, and become something new and whether or not we put a value on just what the, you know, whether or not there's any judgment about, you know, oh, well, we have to keep this uh, pure, or we have to keep this, you know, the kind of counter narratives mm. in this culture about how, you know, um, what what's the most essential thing that we need to keep and and, and, mm. and preserve and, and what is something that we're willing to, and just like an example of my mother kind of essentializing the, rituals and, and bringing it to modern context that we're remembering what is essential and what is to be preserved and what is to um, kind of allow to progress. That's a yeah. really great set of like rhetorical questions, yeah. right? I feel like we're always asking that. Right? Yeah, we're always thinking about that. Because yeah. huh. even in my own story, like uh, actually I, I adopted the Buddhist, my parents are were born Hindu. Uh-huh. Yeah, they, yeah. You know, so I adopted Buddhist. So actually in some ways I've completely cut myself off from, you know, <laughs> Western Buddhist now I consider myself, you know, so uh, whether or not that's like, uh, it's just the way it is, but, you know, I don't know. It has some connection to the Indian tradition, but I don't necessarily care to, uh, you know, preserve all these rituals and such. I don't know. Huh. Yeah. Well, I think about like <clears throat> the iterations of what we're trying to get back to, like, for example, okay, so I would love to like there's still that part of me, like, you know, they're, they're gatekeepers of our, yeah. I think for us, we, our parents can, or, or our countries can be gatekeepers of our rituals. It's like, yeah. okay, here's how you do it. Do it the, whatever the proper way is proper, you know, quote, yeah. unquote. And so for me, it's like, I want to do it how my parents do it, but, but I can't ask them without feeling stupid <sighs> about it. Or they're, they're just like, we, we just did what the other people yeah. did, you know? So I just, I, when I go to temple, I just watch them and they're like, tell me show me how to do but I you know nobody ever actually like explained the function of it so I thought maybe I can go find some you know Theravada Buddhist temple here but you know they're all run by by Westerners right and and you know they're they're white faces and I um I feel a little odd about that as an Asian person going and and having them be the ones to teach me because it's like they will teach me the rituals as they have learned it, but not in the way that I grew up with it. Yeah. And then I don't know that I want to bring that back to my home. Mm. You know, uh, it, it, it's strange. It's like, it's like, you know, it's like the jump, jumping back and forth in different ways. You know, mm. it's like, I, I don't, do you know what I mean? It's like, yeah. you, it's like you, you want the way that your parents do it, but you have to go around them. Yeah. And that's what's happened with me for most of my upbringing is that I couldn't, they wouldn't talk about things and they didn't. It just, they were surviving. And so I, I, the only way I could learn things about my culture and how, where I come from was by going around them mm. and going through books and going through other sources, most of the time Western sources. Yeah. Uh, 
and now and now it's like oh i'm you know considered somebody who knows a lot about it but it's just i don't know i'm doing the same research that you'll be doing yeah. uh and legitimizing it yeah <laughs> so um it's it kind of reminds me actually like so the poems i wrote my mother's voice yeah and so it's written like in a very strange like translated english way or like in her english english khmer speak so i'm doing a reading in lowell massachusetts the second largest cambodian population in the country and uh, I've been asked to translate some of the poems. And I was just thinking, what would happen if I took a, a poem that was originally in Khmer that I translated, but then translated back to Khmer? Oh, yeah. And it's just like, it, you know, going through all the translation processes only to go back to the source. And it's like, what happens when you take a, a already translated poem and try to translate it back? Yeah. You know? You'll probably find a lot of yeah yeah exactly yeah discover a lot of subtle meanings and such yeah yeah it's kind of it reminds you of like a you know when you used to like have cassette tapes and you like make copies Mm -hmm. and um i I dated someone who was a a recording artist and uh and he said when you record one copy onto another tape it loses a generation and i loved that like like that's actually the term they use so every time you you take you know uh like the album and you copy it and then you take that copy and you make another copy it loses like like the sound or yeah. the quality of the sound the changes sound, yeah. Yeah. Changes, but, yeah yeah it changes yeah. but you lose it's a you lose a generation oh wow, wow and wow. i was like whoa that is so deep yeah <laughs> on so many levels yeah <laughs> yeah yeah so i think that's a good note to to close out the interview we just have a few more minutes so. and uh so this is uh uh, this is really great to understand, just to, just to wrap up and to understand how, you know, even though things change and things uh, uh, morph and, and adapt and, and we survive and, and what is that, essentially it's the, the essential is the person or the experiences and I don't know, like something essential that is still Cambodian, it's still Indian, it's still Southeast Asian or Asian and, you know, I don't know, that, that, that morphing aspects of it may change, but some things remain um, essentialized, you know? So it's really interesting how you were able to take like the, the, the experience of your mother essentializing yeah. things. And, and in, in essence, I do feel yeah. like, I do feel like that's what kind of what I've done here. I mean, you know, I'm all, I don't know about you, but I still feel like this book could have been better. You know, I, yeah, I feel like I, but you know, but it's there. And so let's make do with what we have. Right, yeah. so yeah, but it, de- it definitely has a snapshot of that struggle, and then that yeah. that struggle with uh, you know um, that we've been talking about cultures and cross cultural and, and uh, generational. Yeah. Well, thank you for thank seeing you. it. Thank, thank you, you for thank seeing you. it, and thank thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Truth to Power Show on Radio Free Brooklyn. Ready for Brooklyn is a community nonprofit that relies on donations from listeners like you. If you support what you are listening to, please also download the mobile app for iOS and Android. And also sign up for a newsletter, readyforbrooklyn.org backslash newsletter. Now taking us out is from the album Dirty Computer. Here's Janelle Monet's Americans. Please enjoy. Thank you.
Please sign your name on the dotted line.